If you turn to Luke chapter 7, I'll finish a passage that we started two weeks ago in our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Just a very short piece. Then we'll talk a bit about the Lord's Supper. We uh, have this privilege today of uh, celebrating, observing the two ordinances that the Lord Jesus has left for his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we will walk through the last five verses of the section Uh, We'll begin in Luke chapter 7, verse 31, and go down to verse 35. And then in your worship guide, you have on page, I believe it's page 5, the first paragraph of our statement of faith on the Lord's Supper. And we're going to walk through that a little bit and talk about the supreme value, why it is that the Lord has left in particular the Lord's Supper, uh, as an ordinance for us to uh, gather regularly and observe together. So let's pray before we begin. It's a joy to see so many visitors today, uh, and all of you regular PBCers. We're grateful to God for every one of you. Let's go to him in prayer. So Lord, as we come to you this morning, once again, thinking about the miracle of new birth, worked by your Spirit, applying all the benefits of the death, resurrection, ascension, the perfect life lived preceding all of those stupendous events. As we ponder grace and how it is that in your perfect wisdom you made a way. You made a way for those who were your enemies. You made a way for all mankind who would call upon your name, who would call upon Christ to save them. And Father, as we hear the testimony of that having happened in these two young men's life, and then as we portray visually, symbolically, what it took to save us. 
we pray that we would, having been reminded, having partaken, having heard your word, Lord, we would leave changed. That your spirit would so take over the preacher and the hearers. Father, that your word would penetrate. That we all might desire to know you. Be with us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in Luke 7, this section of Scripture began in verse 18. John the Baptist has been thrown into prison, having uh, uh, offended Herod the ruler uh, as he challenged him about his immorality, uh, his relationship with his brother's wife. So he's in prison, uh, seemingly wondering about, maybe did I get it wrong, Jesus, when I said, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I expected you to come and take over this place. And all you're doing is healing, casting out demons, and saving people. And I don't see this thing changing very much politically or nationalistically. So he sent his messengers to Jesus and said, are you the one? And so Jesus, as the messengers come and ask him the very question John sent us, he wanted us to ask you, are you the one? And Jesus just went on healing and casting out the demons and preaching the gospel. And then he stopped and turned to the messenger and said, go tell John what you've just seen. That the blind receive their sight, the dead are raised. And the gospel is being preached and people are being saved. That will confirm for John what he wants to know. And so Jesus then, in uh, that's down to verse 23. Then when the messengers go back to John, Jesus talks with the crowd and he uh, confirms John the Baptist as the greatest prophet of the old covenant. Now in verse 31, he's going to end this section. Let's read it together. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. That's the end of that section. Um... Verse 29 and 30, the last two verses of the section right above, notice that there's a split decision concerning John's ministry. 
verse 29, when all the people heard this, when Jesus talks about who John the Baptist is, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, and having been baptized, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So the people and the tax collectors heeded the message of John the Baptist. They repented, they turned to God, and they were baptized by John. The other hand, the other side is, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They refused John's message. They refused to repent and missed, at least up to this point, had, been, had missed the purposes of God for their life, refusing to be baptized. And so Jesus then said, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? What, are they, what, are, what is this generation of people like? Um, so he does it, he's teaching them with a question. Jesus is so apt at asking questions that teaches more than statements could teach. And so he said, what's this generation like? What are we going to compare this generation? By the way, the word generation... Uh, in particular for end times gurus, end times people fascinated. They want to know how long is a generation? Is a generation, uh, it, it, it's any number of years depending on who it is you're reading about and who is trying to calculate when Jesus will come back and this generation. And that's not how you, Luke uses the word generation. Here's just some uh, things that Luke says about this generation. This generation is twisted. This generation is evil. This generation is judged. This generation will be condemned. This generation rejected Jesus just like the people in Noah's day rejected Jesus. The blood of Abel, the blood of the prophets, and the blood of Zechariah will be charged against this generation. So the connotation that Luke puts with the idea of this generation is not a good picture. It's not a uh, time indicator. It's more a hostility indicator against the gospel of Jesus Christ and the wisdom of our God. And so when he says, what is this generation like? This generation is like every other generation whether in Israel in the first century or in America in the 21st century or anywhere else around the world, this generation that Jesus is speaking about here in Luke 7 is like every other generation. Jesus is really illustrating the nature of man as he speaks to these people who some have repented and turned to God and experience the purpose of God for their lives. Others have turned away from God, have rejected the call to repentance, and missed the purpose of God for their lives. So what are we going to, he says, uh, to what shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? Well, verse 32, he just kind of gives a short summary. They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a 
dirge and you did not weep. What's this generation like? What is the world of unbelief like? Bunch of kids. A bunch of kids on the playground yelling back and forth at one another. Hey, we played the flute and, and, and you should have been happy and you should have danced. Another side. Yeah, but we played a dirge and you didn't get sad. And the world is just like a bunch of children calling back and forth to each other. One wants to play one game, another wants to play another game. We played wedding music, you wouldn't be happy. Yeah, well, that's because we sang a funeral song and you wouldn't be sad. That's what the world is like. And so Jesus, in, th- in the next two verses, he explains it. Explains this little parable. Verse 33. Four. Here's why I'm saying this about you. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend and tax collectors and sinners. So here's the explanation of the parable, the interpretation, how they should apply it. Lord Jesus shows this playground perversity working itself out in the world. John's too weird. The food he ate, the clothes he wore, uh, he's just a mad, eccentric, Howard Hughes kind of a guy, you know, out in the wilderness eating locusts and honey. A demon has taken over his mind. And then you say, I'm too loose. Loving earthly pleasures. Enjoying life. Eating locusts in the desert or eating with tax collectors and sinners in nice houses, unbelievers will not be happy with either. They'll not be pleased with either. Um, Jesus says, look, you can't have it both ways. John and I are both doing what God has sent us to do. John came paving the way for me. Behold, verse 27, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That was Malachi speaking 400 years before John showed up. John came to do exactly what God told him called him to do I'm fulfilling the father's will and in fact fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy in a number of places and you reject both you can't have it both ways there's a sense in which Jesus is saying you think you can play these silly games with life have Jesus and John dance for you in the way that you demand him to dance, them to dance for you. As Jesus teaches through his life, what we find out is uh, unbelief is rarely a well-thought-out, 
rational rejection of certain truths. It's not something that someone sits down and they read and they study and they think about, no, this isn't what I believe. More often than not, it's a twisted and perverse perverse outworking of a depraved nature. The sinful nature that we're all born with as we come into the world. And whether God brings his life-giving word through John or through Jesus, unbelief will always find something wrong. Uh, And that's the way unbelief is. Whether it be in this crowd right here, whether it be in first century Israel, whether it be anywhere around the world, unbelief is never satisfied. Jesus' approach, John's approach, will never satisfy. That's a description of an evil heart, of unbelief. The Hebrew author warned the believers, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's no cure for an evil, unbelieving heart apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to look wherever you want. There's no help. There's no cure apart from Jesus Christ. No one will ever be satisfied in this life until they're satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. You folks who've missed the purpose of God for your life, refusing to hear the gospel, refusing to turn to Christ, you'll never be satisfied rejecting the truth. And then the punchline, verse 35, just sort of his conclusion, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. I don't know if you noticed in Proverbs that wisdom was calling out on the streets and wisdom was a she. <clears throat> wisdom personified as, as lady wisdom. Luke carries that same, or Jesus actually carries that same image Wisdom is justified by all her people. There are a few who answer the gospel that the Lord Jesus has preached. As it shakes, as he preaches the gospel, the Spirit of God and the Word of God shakes unbelief loose. That core of their heart that is refusing the gospel penetrates. And it's through faith and repentance they begin to sink their roots deep in Christ, Jesus. And when people take hold of God's wisdom, whether it's revealed through John out in the desert or through Jesus in the house of the Pharisees or, and tax collectors and sinners, when people begin to take hold of God's wisdom, whether it's a dirge-like message of repent or else, like John preached, or it's the gospel preached as Jesus makes wine at the wedding feast, 
Wisdom will be justified. Wisdom will be proven right. Whether the locust-eating John or in the desert or the wine-making Jesus at a wedding feast, wisdom will be justified and proven right. The wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable. It's open to reason. Remember, I said unbelief is not thought out. It's not a rational decision. Wisdom is open to reason, the wisdom from above. Refuses to dance to the flutes of the world, and it leads that are, that are leading to destruction. Refuses to let freedom become a cover-up for evil. When people embrace the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll no longer be looking at the style of things. They'll no longer be looking at what song, what kind of songs we sing. Whether Corey and I and whoever else stands up there, what our style is like, if that one moves too much or that one's too technical or that one's... When people grab onto the wisdom of God, they'll not be looking at these stylistic things. They'll be fixing their eyes on Jesus. On the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the only hope that any of us have. So Jesus' lesson leads me to ask, and this was supposed to be the end of a sermon two weeks ago. Yeah, go figure. But in God's providence, he wanted you to be here for this. Here, here, this leads me to ask this. Do you think this life that we're living is just a silly playground game? Uh, That we can just kind of skip through this life and when you die, it's over. And that's it. That's just wishful thinking. You think that Jesus left the glory of heaven? Faced off with the devil? uh, Suffered? Died on the cross? So that you might maybe be healthy or uh, wise or well-off, happy. Listen, if, if this life is a game, it's a game for keeps, right? It's appointed to each one of us to die. And after that, the judgment. He died to save you and he died to save me and land sakes did I need to be saved. And I just know that each of you need to be saved also. Uh, And I'm not ashamed to tell you that about me or you ashamed to say that about yourself. Jesus is asked in Luke 13... 
Lord, uh, are there, will those who are saved be few? And combining Luke 13 with Jesus' conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Lord, will few be saved? The way is narrow, the gate is tight. It's hard, but it leads to eternal life, and there's only a few who find it. I opened the sermon two weeks ago with a story out of Pilgrim's Progress about Christian and hopeful, John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life. And Christian and hopeful are on their way on the path to the celestial city, which is a picture of heaven. Um, And uh, uh, the way uh, down the path gets hard. It gets a little difficult. And they see right over across the fence a nice meadow with a nice soft path, a much easier way. And so they take it. And as they're on their way, they get tired, they take a rest, and they fall asleep. And they wake up in the dungeon of giant despair, giant despair's dungeon of Doubting Castle. They're prisoners. No food, no water, no light. They're beaten regularly for five days. Christian considers suicide, contemplates suicide in his despair. Hopeful talks him off the ledge. And then on the last night, he remembers, I have a key. There's a key in my pocket. Bunyan describes that key as the covenant promise from God that he always hears the cries of faith from his children. So the Lord Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls in none other than the Lord Jesus. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He hears the cries of faith from his people. From, he says here, from, uh, up to this point you've rejected me. But come, come to the living waters that I can give as you turn to God with your life and trust in Christ as your Savior. So, that's the end of the episode as Jesus is uh, teaching the people.